Thank you, Pastor Mike, and thank you all of you who have been praying for my father, and I appreciate that. Just um, his visiting nurse at home decided he needed to go back, and they've done a little bit more uh, exploration and put in a new drain for him that's going to be there, and he's going they're going to keep him for some therapy for a while. But we think it seems like people are on top of it, so we can still sense the Lord is uh, is hearing people's prayers and caring for him and. Reportedly, he's just having a great attitude and just really being a blessing to the doctors and nurses there at the, at the hospital. And so my prayer is that some one or more of them will come to know Christ through the testimony of, of my father through this ordeal. So I would appreciate you if you would pray that way as well. Pray for them. Well, so as we continue in our study in the book of Leviticus, we are now in Leviticus chapter 23. And when we come to the chapter 23, we now come to this a new subsection um, of the law as it is uh, being delivered to the Israelites by God through Moses. And now this section is dealing with the holy days, the ceremonies, um, the feasts, festivals of, of Israel that God has called them to observe. And so the very first thing that comes up is the Sabbath, which is the weekly holy day, the weekly festival. And as we look at this, I'm aware that there are many uh, questions even today among Christians about the Sabbath. Should Christians observe the Sabbath? And if so, how should that look for us? What should be the rules? And what difference does Jesus make in the matter? He himself was opposed by the Jewish leadership particularly because they did not like the things that he did on the Sabbath. So did his coming make a big difference? Is there a change in the Sabbath and how we should view it? We know that we have, um, probably all of us here, friends, particularly because there is a, uh, an institution a bit north of Sydney that is Seventh-day Adventist, right? We've probably all encountered, know some Seventh-day Adventist people, and uh, I have met and talked with some I, with whom I, I don't really doubt that they are believers, that they have trusted Christ, that their salvation is secure, but I think that we disagree on something that is nonetheless important, and that is the matter of the treatment of the Sabbath. And so, uh, since we come to that in the text, I think we should address it to some uh, degree. It's a brief portion in this part of the text, um, but it's nonetheless very significant. So, I think we're going to take a couple of, of sermons to address the Sabbath topic. Now, we see these tensions uh, for Jesus amongst the uh, Jewish leaders, as I mentioned. Uh, for instance, let me read a couple of, of passages um, uh, highlighting that. In Luke chapter 13, and, and I have too much text, so I didn't try to put it all on the, on the screen, on the, so you can look with me or listen carefully, either way, or both. Uh, Luke 13, verses 10 through 14, now he, Jesus, was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, right? which is the seventh day. And behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. I've actually seen this. Um, a little town called Bocchki Petrovich in, in um, Croatia. Well, at least it was Croatia. I don't the war broke out there just the very, like, two weeks later after we were there. So I don't know if now that was part of Serbia or what. But, um, but, this, but this lady, I saw this, this woman in the village, 
absolutely bent over and walking, bent over. You know, like if somebody said, reach down and touch your toes, she was stuck in this fashion. So that, that, that image comes to my mind instantly as I read this, this account. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. Can you imagine what a life changer that was for that woman? Can you imagine for years and years walking around trying to exist in that condition? And now all of a sudden she can stand up and walk straight. You would glorify God too, I think. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, he just took the opportunity to speak to everybody, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath. Now, to our minds, that seems rather unreasonable. Why couldn't this woman be healed on this day? And was Jesus wrong to do that? Was he violating the Sabbath to do the work of healing? Well, we know this was a growing point of contention because he kept doing these things. He kept healing people on the Sabbath. How dare he? John 5.16, this is one of the very important little summary verses, one of the clues as to the whole confrontation or the conflict between the Pharisees especially and Jesus John 5.16 says, this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. This was just what really stuck in their craws. They just could not handle that Jesus kept going around doing these important healings on the Sabbath. It violated their code. Well, you see, God was quite clear and quite strict with the Jewish people about the observation of the Sabbath here in the law, and there's more to be found in, uh, later in Deuteronomy and so on. And we see a few instances where God was, was very decisive in bringing the judgment of death against people who violated it. Now, the passage is just the first three verses of Leviticus 23 that we are focusing on, where it says, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. That's the intro to the section that follows. Now, the first heading or subheading of this section is the Sabbath. Verse 3, Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day a Sabbath of solemn rest a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. We'll talk about the significance of that particular word in a, in a moment. But these are the things um, that were not allowed. You were not allowed to do any of the work that was a continuation of your regular work that supported you or your family and, and so on and so forth. Okay? Preparations were to be made in advance of the Sabbath, so that you were ready to have the day as a complete rest, okay? Mom wasn't supposed to have to work cooking meals. Dad wasn't supposed to work having to, you know, go out and gather wood and make the fire and, and all these, these things that were regular work. But you were allowed to eat, right? It wasn't work to eat. The whole point was rest, 
an opportunity and a holy convocation. The people, the people were to come together and to gather to worship on this day, a day where work did not, could not get in the way of spending time with God. And so this was the demand. So we have an account later where uh, one man went out and he had not prepared, apparently, and he was out gathering firewood on the Sabbath. And he faced God's judgment. He was put to death for that. And so it was very serious. The thing was, though, that the, uh, the Pharisees, or well, Jewish leaders even prior to the Pharisees, but they picked up the baton in a, in a bigger way than anybody else, uh, they took what they saw in the law, and they saw how serious it was, and they decided, okay, so uh, consider offenses of, of these laws of God to be like falling off a cliff, right? It's certain death to violate these things because the, the judgments are given uh, throughout the text that for certain things, death is the judgment and the violation of the Sabbath is one. And so they said, okay, so let's, rather than allow people to wander off the cliff, let's set up a fence. And so they set up fence laws, and that's actually kind of what they called them. So, so they put a fence around the law that said, to make sure that you don't break this law, we're going to make the rules stricter and say, don't do A, B, and C, just to make sure you don't accidentally do D, which is the real, you know, violation. But these things became so ensconced in their system, and they were taught with such dogma, and then began to be carried out with such force that they were eventually given the same weight as the actual Mosaic law. And that's where we find these leaders, these Pharisees in the time of Jesus Christ, where they are offended that Jesus were doing things that violated their fence laws, but in reality, He was not violating His own laws, God's laws. So this is an example. Eventually, the rabbinical um, uh, Judaic leaders decided to um, establish a, a whole series of 39 general categories of work that were prohibited on the Sabbath. And uh, I'm taking this list, I'm taking this information from this uh, excellent book called The Feasts of Israel uh, by Bruce Scott, a great um, Jewish uh, scholar. And so, and a scholar of Jewish tradition in the Old Testament. And so, he uh, lists here the, the 39 categories that became part of the, the fence laws and that were enforced very strictly throughout Judaism. These things are prohibited. I'm going to read them quickly. I'm going to read all 39 things here. They're just single words, most, most of them, okay? But just to let your imagination go as to how this would impact your life. Imagine if today you were not allowed to do any of these things, remembering that you live in an agrarian society, right? Farming is the way you live. It is the sort of thing where you have to gather wood and light a fire and, you know, do all that kind of stuff, right? So this is, this is where they come. Now, note, remember, re- reminding you, this list of 39 things is not found in Scripture, at least not all of them, but these were the fence laws that were being enforced by the time that Jesus came on the scene by the Jewish rabbinical leaders. So, not allowed to do any plowing or sowing, reaping, sheaf making. You know, that's the bundling up of the grain. Right? No threshing or winnowing. No selecting. No sifting. 
or grinding or kneading, as in dough. No baking, no sheep shearing, no bleaching, no combining of raw materials. No dyeing, no spinning, no weaving. Uh, there's actually three different types of weaving operations. Uh, no separating into threads, or tying a knot or untying a knot, sewing or tearing, trapping or hunting or slaughtering, skinning, tanning, scraping pelts, marking or scoring a line on something, or cutting something to shape, or writing or erasing, or building or demolishing, kindling a fire, or extinguishing a fire, or adding the final hammer blow to finish a project that you just about finished, or carrying something from the private to the public domain, or vice versa. Can you live by that? You want to observe the Sabbath as it was understood in the time of Jesus? Those are your rules. Well, so they went into description. Of course, there are many uh, applications, many specific things that were, that were addressed by these things. And then, of course, because living by such a code makes life actually rather difficult, then the people began to, out of uh, moments of necessity or urgency, find ways to work around it. And so then they came to the rabbis and, you know, Rabbi, would it be all right if... And so the, the, the carrying of uh, transferring from, you know, public to private domain and so on meant that they decided that a certain distance of uh, 200, uh, 2,000 cubits was the acceptable distance to go from your home to anywhere else on the Sabbath, okay? Because then you would be working if you walked that extra step. Okay? That, would, that would be, or you might be transferring something from, public, from, from your hometown to somewhere else. Uh, that's about half a mile or, I don't, sorry, I don't know how that translates to, to kilometers, but, um, but that certain distance. So then they decided, well, but there's occasions where you might really need to you know, something happens, no doubt, in somebody's life, and they feel that they've really just got to get, go this other distance, so the rabbis decided, well, it's based on your homestead. So um, how about if the day before the Sabbath, you take a loaf of bread, and you walk that distance, and you leave that loaf of bread there. I guess you've got to put your name on it or something, but, <laughs> you, but you leave it there. And then, and then when you come on the Sabbath, you will pause there and eat, and that becomes your home for the moment because that's where you're resting and eating. And then from there, you can go another 2,000 cubits without violating the code. Now, you see how quickly this sort of thing becomes ridiculous, and that's exactly what happens. And so the, the, the acceptable practice and application of these things just kept kind of growing more and more abscesses <laughs> as throughout the time. And so it was complicated. And the Pharisees prided themselves on being the experts on these things and the enforcers of these things. And so Jesus came along and did some of these things that they considered unacceptable, and he wouldn't back down. He heals somebody, which, of course, for him is no effort. He's God. He created them. But they had defined healing or applying medicine as work on the Sabbath because, get this, typically 
preparing medicine meant using a, using a, a pestle and, what would you call it? What is it? A um, Mortar. Thank you. Mortar and pestle, right? And so grinding up things to mix, to blend medicine would be, by their definition, work. And so therefore, to make sure that you didn't make that mistake, you just couldn't do anything to apply medicine or to carry out healing on the Sabbath. And so when Jesus came along and said, you can stand up and walk and healed them, he broke our code. He healed on the Sabbath. That's work. It wasn't for him, but that was the concern. So you see that man's laws and man's expectations, and this is a mistake that is often made, even to this day, become elevated and put on par with God's Word and God's commands and God's expectations. And this is where false religion grows. And this is where the confusion is made between the significance of religion and religious observation and actually seeing things the way God sees them and standing by God's expectations. So we're going to just kind of look at some of these, this little bit of a practical uh, brief look at, at the significance of the Sabbath's precedent, I would say in America. Do you say precedent? Which one's the more correct way here? Precedent? Precedent? Do we have a vote? Those for precedent? Just so I don't offend your ears, those for precedent? Okay, well, I'll try to remember that. Okay. <laughs> all right. So, all right. So the significance of the Sabbath's uh, precedent for Old Testament Israel we see, first of all, the pattern was established at creation. This, the pattern of this day of rest was established by God at creation. Genesis, actually beginning at the end of chapter 1 is where we should begin reading. Uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, and then into chapter 2, verse 3 we see the conclusion of the creation account. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. That's the conclusion of the sixth day. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. There's something significant in that phrase, by the way. And the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So, verse 3, God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, we know this is an anthropomorphism. God didn't, it wasn't work for him to create. But God was establishing a, an example, a pattern for the sake of the people that he made at this point. So, he demonstrated accomplishing things in six days, and then taking a seventh day to rest. And he blessed it and made it holy. Now, I won't go long on this because we've addressed the topic uh, other times more exhaustively, but because it is so prevalent and destructive in our society today, this attempt to take this and say, well, that's not literally true, this whole six days you know, of creation and, you know, the literal 24-hour period and everything like that. 
Well, here we see one of the reasons why, as Christians, it is important for us to accept the text as it is stated, because God actually did this on purpose to establish this pattern of the six days of work and the seventh day of rest. And so it's quite explicit. And I just have to say, those who attempt to say that, oh, no, this is just liturgical, it's poetic, it's not really meant to be taken literally, well, all of the Hebrew language scholars of the world disagree with you. Even those who are not Christians, who do not actually accept it as fact, agree that the text as written is intended to be understood literally, that it is historical narrative Hebrew writing. All the signs are there. Just as you would study, you know, English today, you can recognize the patterns of what is meant to be an historical account versus what is meant to be poetry, right? Poetry has certain rhythm and meter in English, and you have parallels, you have rhyme, you have certain features that you, you start reading right away and you go, oh, this is a poem. Right? It's real obvious. You read something else and you go, oh, this is sports scores. This is not meant to be taken literally, you know, that the Panthers devoured the eels last night, all right? Uh, where are the panthers in Australia? I, I, I need to be watching more carefully. They're obviously ferocious. Obviously, we're talking metaphorically about sports organizations, right? And, and so you, re- you read that, and you know by the context how it's to be interpreted. And you read something, something else, and you go, oh, well, this is clearly a historic record. This is somebody sharing facts. Well, it's just the same in the Old Testament Hebrew. It's very clear what type of literature you're reading if you, if you have studied the Hebrew language. Uh, and I, I found this fascinating studying Hebrew in, in seminary to, to see how the Hebrew language is used differently for different kinds of texts. And all of the markers, without going deeper and boring you, all of the markers for historical narrative are there in all of those first chapters of Genesis. It's exactly, you know, you could, go, you could go down the academic list and go, if this is historical narrative, if this is meant to be an account of real events, I would expect to find da 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 And that's exactly what you find there. If, on the other hand, you say, if this is liturgical or poetic literature in Hebrew, ancient Hebrew, I would expect to find da 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 And none of that is here. So for a person to look at this and try to say, oh, that's not really meant to be literal, you can't take... I'm sorry, but that's completely contrary to all the evidence in the text. And so it's a choice that has to be made. Am I going to accept God's Word as stated, or am I going to reject it because I think that as a human being, I know better than God? Because science has proven such as this. No, it has not, as a matter of fact. If you start from this viewpoint, if you start from what the Bible says and take it literally and then say, what would I expect to find in in the created world, if this is God's creation, what would I expect to find? That's exactly what you find. So it's about what kind of glasses you wear, how you see the evidence and how you understand it. I accept exactly what it says here as truth and fact that God created the world in six literal days and the seventh day he stopped that work, calling it complete and blessing that day and establishing a pattern for mankind. And so that was already in the background for, for the Israelites. But now God wanted to make this uh, actually a part of their law so that they will not fail to observe it. And it's really a blessing. It's really a gift from God. If you think about it, if you think about it it's, not, it's not a religious thing so much as it is a gift, a gracious gift. Take a break, God says. 
You need a break. You need a rest. You need time with your family. You need time of fellowship with those who share in your faith in the one true and living God. You need time to pause and worship Him and to read His Word. You've got to take a break from the grind. And this is what God wanted to establish in their law. The word, uh, the key word here that we say Sabbath is Shabbat in Hebrew. It literally means to cease or rest. This is the day to, to stop, to rest, let the work go. Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11, we see uh, earlier in the very first delivery of, of the law, whereas Leviticus is kind of the expansion of, of the fuller understanding of the law as delivered in outline form in, in Exodus. Let's go back to Exodus. Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11, God says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter. And get this, the servants get the benefit too. God is thinking of them also. Your male servant, your female servant, and your livestock, they need a break. All right, give the ox a break. He needs a day off. Or the sojourner who is with you within your gates, your guests. They need a break too. Or, and here's the reason given, and here we again, reason to accept as literal, why it's important to accept as literal the account of Genesis, because it's offered up as the reason for this, for the pattern. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. This is reason given up. Also, Exodus chapter 23, verse 12, just a little bit further down the road. Exodus 23, verse 12, it's reiterated, six days you shall do no work, but on the seventh, or six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have a rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien, as in the guest, the foreigner, may be refreshed. So God in His graciousness and His concern for the well-being of all His creatures, human and animal alike, insisted on this rest. So that pattern was established by God, even at creation. That's the precedent first set was God's example of the very time of the very week of creation setting a pattern, and now it's being enforced for Israel, which leads us to be in our outline. The law was given by God to establish the covenant, God codifying this observance of the Sabbath day was part of His establishment of His unique relationship with the nation of Israel, the covenant relationship. And so we see that God elevates the observance of the Sabbath as one of the key signs of the unique relationship between Him and the people of Israel. There were a few specific things, observance of the Passover, observance of circumcision, and observance of the Sabbath. These were, these were lifted up by God as the most significant signs for onlookers to, to, to show that these are a sanctified people who belong to God. So in Exodus chapter 31, 
verses 12 through 17, we see this. The Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign. Again, the word sign is key. Forever between me and the people of Israel, that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Again, the anthropomorphism for their benefit to follow that example, to follow that pattern. So the law regarding the Sabbath was given particularly to establish this covenant relationship. God is using Israel once again as an example to the world of what it's like to have a relationship with the one true and living God. And he's a gracious God who insisted on their rest, insisted on their taking the opportunity to be refreshed, insisted on their taking time with their family, insisted on their taking time to worship him and to read his word. It became the tradition and observance of the Sabbath, and, and not, not altogether bad. Again, it's, it's human structure, some of the way it's observed. Um, but you can see that there is, in this case, an understanding of the general idea of what the Sabbath is supposed to be. It became the tradition of Jewish people to, um, to start with a family gathering. Now, by the way, remember, if you don't remember this, I'll explain it again. For the Jewish people, the Jewish calendar is a little bit different than ours, and so are the days, right? The beginning of the day is the, actually the evening. When the sun sets, that's the beginning of the next day. And just as we see the pattern in throughout Genesis, that, that first chapter, there was evening and there was morning the first day. That's exactly the way the Jewish people viewed it. That's exactly how they understood it. The evening is the beginning of the day, and then the, the day is the daylight hours that follow the night hours. Okay, so you have the, the dark time and the light time, the evening and the morning. That's the 24-hour day cycle for them. Okay? So that's when it started. All right, so the Sabbath day actually begins on what we would call Friday night at sundown. And it goes until Saturday night at sundown. So the tradition became that the people would, the family would, would do everything. There would be a hurry-scurry excitement about the Sabbath coming because this is the, the this is the weekly most important day. And they learned to, to enjoy it and, and, and love it, which was God's intention altogether. And so everything during the week is supposed to be prepared, and then they're looking forward to it. They're all counting down. Oh, it's only two days till Sabbath. We need to be sure we get such and such such done so that we can enjoy our Sabbath the way we're supposed to. And so, you know, get the firewood in and get the bread needed and get everything, you know, all prepared so we've got the food to eat and, and everything's good. And they're watching and the mother's monitoring and watching as the sun's getting down. She's telling the kids, hurry up, hurry up, go change your clothes. And they put on their nice clothes and they come around the table and the Sabbath candles are lit and the mother sp speaks a prayer and blesses her children. 
They have a little family time, and then they go together to the synagogue where they would spend a little time in prayer and reading a portion of God's Word, gathered together with God's people for worship, and then they would go back home and enjoy their dinner together and their evening as a family. And the next morning, they would get up and go to the synagogue again, more Scripture, more prayer, more worship, and back for their, their first meal of the daylight there, their breakfast or brunch, I guess it would be. And, and then they would usually have a little bit of a nap. And then they'd go back to the synagogue again and have a little more time of worship and prayer and everything. And then they come back together as a family and then have their, have their dinner or supper up, up till the sundown time, which would then be the end of the Sabbath. They would see the Sabbath out together as a family. It's really kind of a beautiful thing if you consider that special time that they were to enjoy. And so God is establishing through His people Israel an example of life and relationship to the one true and living God. We see also uh, that this is a sign of the covenant later in the prophets. Uh, in Ezekiel chapter 20, Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 9 through 12, he said, I acted for the sake of my name that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived. Again, this is the point that Israel was to be an example. In whose sight I made myself known to them in bringing them out of the land of Egypt. So I led them out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness, and I gave them my statutes and made known to them my rules by which if a person does them, he shall live. Moreover, I gave them my Sabbaths as a sign between me and them that they might know that I am Yahweh who sanctifies them. This is a precious and sacred part of the covenant relationship between God and His people, Israel. So what is the significance of these things for us today? New Testament believers, we're still left with that question. What are we to do? So let's look at the significance of the Sabbath's precedent for New Testament believers. And this will not be exhaustive today, but we'll have a little more to say. This is kind of just dealing with some of the most practical element of it, very briefly. And the next time we come together, we're going to discover or, or study together how we see in the New Testament a, some light shone on the Old Testament Sabbath, about the greater significance of the Sabbath. Yes, on the practical level, God was providing for people, knowing how He made us. Remember the, you know, the owner's manual idea, right? God made us. He knows how we work. He knows what we need. Just as a car manual kind of informs you, advises you that every so many kilometers, you really need an oil change. If you follow that, you're going to maintain your vehicle much better. It's going to probably last much better for you and, and operate well. If you ignore that, you're going to run into problems. Right? God knows how we're made. The manufacturers know how the car is made. God knows how human beings and His other creatures are made. He knows what we need. And so He established this pattern. He built it in, and He enforced it for His people Israel. But what about for us? Well, the pattern for one day of rest and worship predates the Mosaic law, right? We saw that. We read in Genesis the pattern established by God, and when it comes to the law, it keeps referring back to that creation week as the ultimate precedent for observing the Sabbath, the, the day of rest, six days of work, one day of rest, right? And so the fact that that predates the Mosaic law means we cannot just say, 
we need to have no concern for that idea of the one day of rest because that was just part of the Mosaic law. The Mosaic law has been fulfilled by Jesus Christ. It is now obsolete for us today, and so that's that. The fact that it actually was something that God demonstrated for all mankind prior to calling out the people of Israel, prior to giving them his statutes, as we read there in that text, is something that we should all consider that is part of God's owner's manual, manufacturer's manual for his creatures. It's not only a part of the Mosaic law. It even predated the fall and the curse of sin on the, on the world, right? The creation week, at the end of creation week, and, and God setting the example of the seventh day of rest, Adam and Eve had not sinned yet, so this was not just some accommodation for the curse in this world. This was actually part of God's original design. It represents an aspect of God's original design for His creatures, is to have this day of rest in every cycle of seven. Jesus refers to this in Mark chapter 2. Uh, just very briefly, Mark chapter 2, verses 27 and 28, Jesus said to, to them, his audience, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus is facing some of those criticisms from the Pharisees because he was just walking through the fields with his disciples and they were hungry and they plucked some, some grains you know, to eat. And in the Pharisees' view, that was work. In Jesus' view, that was just eating. It was nourishing the body, giving the body what it needed. And so they criticized him, but he points out to them this, this really important principle that I believe is a universal principle for us to understand is the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. See, they had turned it upside down in their religious tradition, which happens again and again. You see, God's, in God's system, He tells people to do what's best for them. Worship Him alone. That's not for His benefit. It's not like He needs the kudos. It's not like He needs the praise. He's not pumped up by our praise. He existed for eternity pr prior to our existence in all the glory of heaven. He doesn't need us. So He says, worship Me and Me alone because He knows that's what's best for us because there's no one else who loves us like He does. There's no one else who created us. There's no one else who can help us in our time of need. There's no one else who can give us eternal life. So when he says, worship me and me alone, that is gracious and good and loving. And so when he tells people, take a break once a week, that's not saying, I need to make people jump through hoops. I need to make sure that they, that they understand the significance of religion and doing things that will, that will make them understand that they're, and know that they're religious people. Uh, that would be nonsense, right? And yet that's what people do all the time building more and more edifices of tradition around a religion so that people can fulfill more things and therefore feel more self-satisfied and more achieving. You know, I do all these, these spiritual things. Yeah. Even to the point of people in parts of the world, you know, crawling on their knees over rough cobblestones for, for miles to go to a cathedral to kiss a statue because somehow that makes me more 
spiritually sound, that makes, that's going to gain me favor with God. A complete misunderstanding of God's very nature. So religion tends to heap burdens upon people. Religion makes people feel like they've got to do, 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 do more. And God says, you can never do enough. I mean, if, you can try, if, you're, if what you're trying to achieve is holiness and acceptab- acceptability to me, holy God, you can never do enough. So give up. Accept my gracious gift of forgiveness and salvation through Jesus Christ. That's the ultimate point. So God's laws are for people's benefit, not to heap burdens upon them. And so the Pharisees' misunderstanding here was, oh, they're not doing the right things or not doing the right things to be properly observant of the Sabbath day. And Jesus is pointing out to them, now, wait a minute, you seem to think that people are supposed to be serving the tradition of the Sabbath when in reality God, I, designed the Sabbath for them, for their benefit, for their rest. So they got man's tradition in the way of God's way of doing things and God's intentions. So let's look at um, Matthew chapter 12, another passage. Matthew chapter 12, we see a, a little longer discourse that, that highlights, that demonstrates this contest of ideas between the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day and Jesus himself. Matthew 12, verses 1 through 14. At the time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, I just alluded to this, and here's, here's the fuller description of it. Uh, his disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath, according to their fence laws. And he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how the Sabbath, on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? Because remember, the the sacrifices were supposed to be offered up day and night continually. They didn't stop on the Sabbath day. And so the priests and the Levites who on duty in the, in the temple, they had to keep on doing their regular things. So Jesus is pointing out there are exceptions. There are reasons for things to be a little bit different because, once again, the Sabbath is for man and not man for the Sabbath. Verse 6, I tell you something greater than the temple is here because they're all about observance of the Sabbath and elevating the temple. They would swear on the temple. The temple was their love. That was the the center of everything. Once again, getting off track from God's intentions. So he says, I'm telling you that something greater than the temple is here. That's where he was at the time. They were saying, you're profaning the temple by healing on the Sabbath, here in the temple, etc. Verse 7, if you had known what this means, and he quotes Old Testament Scripture, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. If you had understood that, supposed to be the scholars of the Old Testament after all, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man is a label from the prophecies of the Messiah. And so he speaks of himself in third person, identifying himself as the Messiah by calling himself the Son of Man. He's saying the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. 
In other words, he's flexing just a little bit, and rightly so, saying, I make the rules about the Sabbath. And I'm telling you, it's for people's good, not for religious services. So he went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. Now, he's just been challenged on doing things on the Sabbath, right? He's just walked away from that conversation. He walks into the, into the synagogue, and here's a man with a withered hand, and they, asked, and they asked him, they challenged him, really, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? They're trying to trap him. Verse 11, he said to them, which one of you has a sheep? But if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, we'll not take a hold of it and lift it out. Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. The word straight from Jesus' mouth. Lord of the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored, healthy like the other. Oh, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. How dare he help some disabled person on the Sabbath? He defies our fence laws. He's a challenge to our authority. They didn't understand that Jesus was Lord of the Sabbath. They missed the important thing. Well, we see, finally, that the law was fulfilled when Jesus established the new covenant. He was flagging what was, what was happening with his, with his advent, with his coming here, with his ministry, what he was about to do. He was going to fulfill the law and all of its stringencies and bring people back to understanding that it's really all about God's grace. It's really about God loving people and offering them forgiveness and complete wellness in their soul as well as their body, ultimately through glorification in heaven. We have a hint to what we'll look at a little bit further if we look at Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13. This will be picked up in the next time we come together. But in Hebrews 13, the author says, "...in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete." And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Jesus was speaking of making a new covenant, and we even read those words when we observe the, uh, his introduction of the, of the communion, the Lord's table, where he says, this is the new covenant in my body, in my blood, right? which is established for you. Jesus did something that made everything very, very different for us, so that the Mosaic law is obsolete today. It had its purpose. It was not a bad thing. Paul argues very clearly for that. The, the Mosaic law was a, was a blessing for what it taught us, for what it taught everyone. Through Israel, it was really a lesson for all the nations of the world, demonstrating that God is indeed a holy God, and we are indeed fallen sinful creatures. We cannot achieve the holiness on our own that would make us acceptable to Him. Because even the law as it was, was not achievable for everyone. People kept violating it, violating it again and again. It was, it was onerous to them because 
of the weaknesses of the flesh. And so the law highlighted that. The law pointed out that no one can really do perfectly all that's required to please God. And so it was, according to Paul, our teacher. And so we can look back reflectively and, and, and see that and see that the law was difficult and highlighted the inability of human beings religiously to satisfy God. And so there must be another solution. Jesus is that solution. But now, there still may be considerations for us, right? Because we don't just toss everything in the Old Testament away because, because the law has been made obsolete by, by Jesus. We still understand things about God by studying these things. And we, there are still things that we can see evidence of being applicable to us today, especially when Jesus mentions them again in the New Testament. But let's just consider these couple of simple things, okay? Just a couple things to consider. Number one, since the particular strict rules about how to observe the Sabbath were part of the now obsolete Mosaic law and the covenant with Israel, we do not have to observe the Sabbath legalistically. So any of those laws about, you know, not lighting a fire, you know, not cooking your food or or, I mean, they went into all kinds of other things. A woman's not allowed to pluck a, uh, a gray hair from her head because that would be work, right? And so fence laws, more fence laws, right? Because that was a fence law already to make sure that she wasn't tempted to do some work, okay? Then she shouldn't even pluck a hair from her head because that's getting close, dangerously close to work. So in order to make sure that she wasn't even tempted to do that, they were supposed to cover all the mirrors in the house before the beginning of the Sabbath, you weren't to look in a mirror on the Sabbath day because then you might see the white hair and be tempted to pluck it and violate the fence law that is supposed to keep you away from violating God's law. Right? You can see how ridiculous we can become once we go down the road of religious attempts to please God. So we don't need to be legalistic about that. But, second point, since the Sabbath rest pattern was established at creation, we should consider it a priority to take a day for rest, refreshment, and worship. We see that this was God's gift to His people, but that it, His establishment of that pattern predated the Mosaic Law. It's in the very week of creation prior to the curse. And so this is something that God's designed for us. And here I think sometimes, I know I have failed many times in saying, okay, well, that was the law, the law, the Mosaic law. It's obsolete today. We don't have to obey all the strict rules around that. But then perhaps I swing too far the other way and fail to ever take the rest. And sometimes, you know, I think we even do it to ourselves. And now I'm, I'm really walking out on thin ice here, I know. But we accept today and, and without going deeply into that, it's a kind of another message. I'm not sure if we need to go there. But we observe the first day of the week now as our, as our day of rest and worship, Sunday. Because that was established with Jesus Christ's resurrection on that day, which entered the new covenant. And then we see from the earliest early church that they transitioned their day of worship to the first day of the week, Sunday, observing Christ's resurrection. And because Jesus changed the covenant and brought this second covenant here, the new covenant, then it goes back to that predate, the creation week idea, 
which is really just establishing six days of work, one day of rest. So where we place that is not a legal issue for us. We're not the people of Israel living under the covenant. Right? So the, what has been accepted by the church from the earliest early church right after Jesus' resurrection was that Sunday is the day that's observed as a Sabbath, as a day of rest and worship. Not strict and legal, legalistic as they were under the Mosaic law and the Pharisees' fence laws, but nonetheless, that day is important. That became the day to spend with family, to spend together with God's people, to worship, to read God's word, to sing together, to pray together, to rest and be refreshed as well, according to God's plan and pattern. And I think that we need to remember to, to do that. Now, the thin ice. I grew up in a very busy, very active, very, very traditional Baptist church where it seemed to be. Now, this is me reflecting, okay? This is me reflecting by way of application, letting our minds be stirred as to what the implications are for us. You had to be there early for Sunday school. Then there was a long worship service. Then you go to lunch. Then you have to come back again in the evening. And again, the service was really just kind of a lesser version of the Sunday morning service all over again. And then there, in our case, there was choir practice after that. So it, Sunday became the most exhausting day of the week. That was my experience. And others that were with me. So I think we need to be careful. We see the importance of gathering with God's people. We are challenged. We were even reminded yesterday of those who were at the picnic, the importance of. We have Hebrews 10 telling us, don't neglect the gathering together for worship. That is a critical part of what God intended for the day of worship was uh, a day of rest is for people to come together and take the time to fellowship with Him and with each other. So that is not an element to be neglected. But we should be careful, I think, perhaps, about how much we load up the, the activities of the day that it's also supposed to be a day of rest and refreshment and time with family. But that also means we need to reflect the other signs. It's not just the church that might over, you know, burden people for Sundays because we make other choices then sometimes too. It's like, oh, we're going to go to the soccer game and we're going to do this and we're going to go that and I'm going to do all my shopping. and uh, it, Right? So we can violate that in our own ways. Again, I'm not promoting a legalistic approach to Sunday as the Sabbath, but I'm challenging myself and all of you to consider, are we being observant of what God intended from the very beginning and remembering that we're not machines, we, we have to rest we have to take some time to set aside all the burdens, the worries, the stresses, the regular work. We need to refresh ourselves. We need to pause and not let work get in the way of God's Word and His worship and fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Time with our families. Come on, people. This, today, what is hurting more in our society than families? And it, we, we sacrifice our families on the altar of providing for them. 
And what could be a greater loss? Does that glorify God when our families fall apart? Does it glorify God when our children feel neglected because we're always too busy for them? I think God knew what He was doing when back in creation, He established this pattern of you need to take a break. You need to have time with your family. And I've not been a perfect model of that principle, but I'm going to strive to get the work done in the six days and let this be more a day of rest where we come together and worship and fellowship together. Maybe that extends into lunch. And then there's time with family and there's time, just downtime, setting the work aside and resting so that then we're refreshed to do the work the next week. It can be difficult. I don't know if I'll even achieve that today because I'm thinking of a couple things that really need to be done by tomorrow morning. But I'm going to strive in this direction. And I want to challenge you to do that as well. Because God established the pattern all the way back at the week of creation for our good. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you are such a gracious God. More than demanding things from us, you demand that we do what is good for us. That you have graciously provided for us in, in many ways. And so even in this practical matter of taking the rest that we need to spend the time with our families, to spend time with our brothers and sisters in Christ, to spend time in your word and in worship together, help us, Lord, to prioritize this anew. Help us to figure out those ways during the week to achieve the other things that we can have this time that, according to your wisdom, we need to take in order to be refreshed and to nurture our faith in our families. Give us the grace and the wisdom to do this for your glory and our good, because we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.